Hi, I'm Arun George and you're listening to 3 Things, the Indian Express news show. In today's episode we're talking about a unique COVID-19 vaccine that's under development. Then we're talking about finding one of the most iconic pieces of cricket memorabilia in Indian cricket. But first we're looking at what has been achieved in a very stormy session of parliament. The monsoon session of parliament was to end on the 1st of October but ended instead on the 23rd of September. It saw many pieces of legislation being passed by both houses of parliament but also saw chaos in the Rajya Sabha over two farm bills. It also saw the opposition boycotting both houses of parliament for the last few days. We're now speaking with the Indian Express's associate editor Liz Matthew about why this session of parliament was held, why it ended prematurely, why a BJP ally left the government and the potential impact of all that has happened in parliament on the Bihar elections later this year. Liz could you start by explaining what was the aim of holding the monsoon session despite this COVID-19 pandemic? See, uh, parliament has to sit every 6 months. The gap between two sessions can be you know 6 months only so mid september the parliament had to meet because we know that the last session we had was on march 23rd so the parliament had to sit it is a constitutional obligation so there was no other way even if it was for a day it had to meet and you must have seen many state assemblies also have done that they have done like one day meeting two day meeting but that meeting the house has to meet that is a constitutional provision so it had to be done because during this lockdown period after march you know after the budget session the government had promulgated a series of ordinances because some of them were for covid fight and some of them for this we have seen that the controversial bills also were there you know once you promulgate a ordinance that also has to be approved by both houses of parliament within 6 months so these legal formalities or constitution formalities were there when there were 11 ordinances that were promulgated during the lockdown period the government had to have some time because some of them were controversial they knew that and also we knew that you know there was this pandemic issue and this china aggression and they expected the opposition to disrupt the house for like one or two days then you know they must have calculated all the time and they initially planned it for 18 days so uh, the session effectively has already ended and it was cut short by a little over a week but how much did it achieve in this period uh yes of course the session got cut short that is mainly because of the pandemic you know that uh, hundreds of people have been tested positive in parliament and we have seen one minister three mps died i mean they did not get covid from parliament or something but you know the pandemic situation was getting worse that was one reason for the government and both presiding officers to consider even the opposition had actually agreed for it to consider cutting short of the session but also you know the government had passed all the bills all the ordinances they were planning to in fact the monsoon sessions it was proposed to be 37 hours the house worked for over 60 hours including weekends you know usually it was the first time that the house uh, lok sabha sat for sundays the productivity of the house in 10 sittings is recorded at 167% you know it, this is like much higher compared to other sessions in the past and also like 68% of that time has been used for legislative business and remaining were like for zero hour zero hour is the time that the mps from different parts of the country raising matters of public importance and there were debates also the lok sabha passed uh, 25 bills and uh, 16 were reintroduced 
according to the speaker's office, 370 MPs had spoken uh, during the session. That way, the productivity was very high. However, the politically, you know, uh, it was divisive also in the sense we have seen the opposition boycotting the last two-day session. And in the Rajya Sabha, it really went beyond anybody's uh, control. And uh, there were very unruly scenes and chaotic scenes the Rajya Sabha had witnessed. And usually Lok Sabha witnesses this kind of scene. But, you know, this time it was Rajya Sabha, the elder house has witnessed, especially over the farm bills. So all over, uh, it was very eventful in terms of uh, business and in terms of uh, political drama. So, you know, you mentioned this, but a major bone of contention were the two farm bills that saw the Shirumani Akali Dal drop its ministerial post, the ruckus in the Rajya Sabha. Uh, but how big a development is the Shirumani Akali Dal leaving for the BJP-led NDA? See, it is a big event, although BJP is not going to accept it, mainly for two reasons. One is the perception, because on what issue they have walked out of the government, not out of the NDA still. It's not like Shiv Sena. Shiv Sena, you could say that they wanted power or they wanted something, you know, you could give other political ambitions and all. But in the issue of like Shiv Sena and Shiromani Akalidal are traditional and two of the oldest allies of the BJP. And Shiromani Akalidal walking out on an issue related to farmers, that is a big blow. And it is not something the BJP had anticipated. BJP never thought that they would walk out of the government like this. When Harshambrath Kaur resigned, it was quite dramatic, you know, in the last hour, in the, during the last hours of the discussion on farm bills, during which, other than the opposition, you know, even friendly parties like TRS and BJD asked for, like, you know, sending in the bill to a select committee or having, you know, changed the perception. Even Shiromani Akalidal, you know, in the morning, we're talking about further discussion and all. In the last minute, Subir Singh Badal came and immediately after his intervention in the debate, he announced that, you know, Harshimrit Kaur, his wife, was going to resign from the government, saying that they did not want to be a part of a government which is taking anti-former decision. Shiromani Akalidal strongly opposes this bill. If you remember correctly, in 2014, after Modi came with a massive majority, that time also the Modi government tried to push a land acquisition bill. There were protests all across the country and the opposition launched a major campaign. Even the RSS, you know, the farmer wing of the RSS was against it. Finally, despite all the effort, Narendra Modi government had to withdraw that. So that obviously it showed that, you know, they were concerned or they were worried about the perception it created. As we know that in 2015, BJP lost Bihar election. This time also it's the same pattern is happening. There is a farmer's issue. The farmers across the country are agitated and election in Bihar is coming. So at a time like that, when a traditional or one of the oldest ally walking out of the government citing that issue is going to be a big political problem for the BJP. We have seen how BJP is trying to kind of overcome it and trying to like counter the quote-unquote propaganda. But it shows, you know, how nervous the government is. You know, you just mentioned it and that's really my next question. Uh, the controversy over these bills really comes, you know, just months ahead of the Bihar election. So is that now a big worry that this sort of discontent could spill into that campaign because that's something very crucial for the BJP this year, isn't it? 
of course you know it is uh, not just politically and uh, it's also like you know you know that we have seen covid we have seen china issue china aggression at the border issues at the border and the government has been facing a lot of criticism and obviously the um, prime minister's uh, popularity and also his acceptance is under test so bihar election would definitely be taken as a kind of litmus test for that how popular prime minister modi is and also you know for bjp as a party which wants to rule all the state you know we know that in 2015 both rjd and jdu came together and won the election with clear majority but how bjp worked and you know split that alliance and got jdu walked back to nda fold that showed you know how important is bihar for the bjp and bjp takes every state seriously but bihar is very important for them if you go into the merit of the bill there may be many advantages the ministers are talking about the ruling party is talking about but the perception these bills have created is not in favor of the government so it is going to be a big challenge for bjp to counter that and also anti incumbency in the state you know that nidish kumar and bjp uh, like jdu and bjp were in alliance and ruling the state so obviously there is anti incumbency and other issues everything together coupled with this covid post covid issues migrant labor issue the border issue economic crisis the unemployment everything will be compounded and you know it is going to be a big big challenge for the bjp and they did not want to have this kind of issue also adding to it but it happened so one thing as you said is also that the parliament was remarkably productive and you know but a lot of that had to do with the ruckus and the boycott which allowed multiple legislation to be passed including things like the foreign contribution regulation act um given the how this session of parliament went you know is this a sort of template now we can expect to see where this opposition almost doesn't have the power to block or even push something into a select committee and get oversight over legislation yes that has been the situation for a while now the bills which the government is very keen on they would push it despite all the protest and despite even the protest from the allies that is what we have seen and bjp has brewed majority in the lok sabha they along with their friendly parties have majority in the rajya sabha so obviously the bills which they want to they are keen on will be pushed we know the abrogation of article 370 and also the caa the citizenship amendment act we have seen how it happened despite all the protest and some parties have jammed over and some members have jammed over bjp whether it was triple talaq whether it was caa we have seen you know they would use all the mechanism all the ways to push the bills which they are committed to ideologically and also economically before we get to the next segment i just wanted your quick attention one of the big reasons people say that they like this show is because it helps them understand the news better it provides them with the context they need to see the bigger picture and there's perhaps no other place that does this better than the indian express's explained section we on three things refer to the section regularly and it helps us make this show if you're a regular reader of the newspaper you know how useful the explained section can be especially when you're looking for in-depth analysis by the right experts you can log into indianexpress.com/explained and access their coverage 24/7 explained by the indian express when news that matters is explained by experts who know the subject now back to the show india is adding over 80000 cases of covid-19 and registering over 1000 deaths a day due to the virus for over a week now 
Given the extent of the spread of the virus, two things will now be crucial. Herd immunity, where enough people catch the virus and thereby slow its spread, or a vaccine. There are multiple vaccine candidates being tested across the world and are in various stages of trials. The Indian Express's Prabha Raghavan, who has been closely tracking the COVID-19 vaccine development, reported on Wednesday that the Indian firm Bharat Biotech has declared it's aiming to manufacture up to a billion doses of single-dose intranasal vaccine if it clears trials. The Indian firm has tied up with Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri for the candidate. But what is an intranasal vaccine? Which is basically when the vaccine is squirted into your nostrils and you basically inhale that in. So it's like a nasal spray. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of us have at some point or the other have had to use nasal sprays for colds and things like that. But this is basically a vaccine that is then delivered in a similar form. There are other internasal vaccine candidates also being developed. But are there vaccines for other diseases that are administered in this manner? There aren't a lot of vaccines that have been developed to be administered in the intranasal route. And so far, the only type of vaccine that has successfully been used as an intranasal vaccine are influenza flu vaccines, basically. Um, apart from that, we haven't really seen a lot of other vaccines that have been given in this form. The most common way of administering a vaccine is using a syringe, which injects the solution containing the vaccine into a muscle like the shoulder or buttock. But Prabha points out that this is a pandemic and requires mass vaccination very quickly. So you'd need a lot of syringes, a lot of needles, and most crucially, enough trained personnel to administer them. Nobody really knows how to inject themselves with a vaccine. The benefit of having an intranasal vaccine in such a situation is the fact that you can produce this in a package that will be easy for the individual to vaccinate themselves. So it cuts down on a lot of logistical issues that you would then be facing if you needed to make sure that you had enough people across the country, across the world, to be able to give you the competence that are required and enough trained people to know how to use these vaccines and administer them to you. So in theory, this is a great idea. It's a vaccine that's easy to administer and can be transported easily. But it does have its limitations. We haven't really seen a lot of vaccines come out that are easy to deliver in this group. And there have been attempts in the past to get more vaccines apart from just influenza vaccines. There was a trial for a measles flu vaccine that was attempted a while ago. And it's just that it never really went successfully past the trial stage. Prabha says there's little clarity on why intranasal vaccines aren't as effective as others and needs more testing. Another problem with having an intranasal vaccine is that, especially in the COVID scenario, you need to be able to deliver a larger quantity of the vaccine to the human body so that the toxins that are to be created of the virus can be produced in higher concentration. But in an intranasal vaccine, you don't really have a lot of room to do that because your nostrils are small. You can't really shove a lot of liquid in there in one go. So the dosage 
or the quantity of the liquid that can be administered is also very small in volume. So that's also a limitation. This intranasal vaccine candidate has managed to clear the preclinical trials where it was tested successfully on animals like mice and rabbits. Prabhu says it will now enter the first phase of human testing to see how effective it is on people. She says the intranasal vaccine candidate is similar to the University of Oxford AstraZeneca candidate in terms of the kind of response it tries to get from the body's immune system. It's very early stage. It's going to happen in the US to start with. And after that, Bharat Biotech will also approach the Indian regulator and will ask for permission to conduct phase two and phase three clinical trials in India. Once they get approvals, they will go ahead and start recruiting volunteers and administering the vaccine to them through the nasal route. And if this vaccine candidate is successful, Prabha says it could be quite path-breaking. If it does end up working, then this would definitely be a more path-breaking vaccine in that case because it will be effective and also easy to deliver. It may easily be one of the most watched cricket shots by Indian fans on the internet. It's the 2011 ODI World Cup final in Mumbai's Wankhede Stadium. Sri Lanka's Nuan Kulasekara runs up to bowl in a lost cause with India needing just four runs of 11 balls to win. Indian captain Mahindra Singh Dhoni has led his team to the cusp of victory. The delivery is straight and... The stadium that's already on its feet erupts. India has won its second World Cup, with the last one having come decades ago in 1983. Indians are dancing in the stands of the stadium, in the streets and at home. Dhoni picks up a stump and hugs Yuvraj Singh. The team carries Sachin Tendulkar on a lap of honour around the stadium. They receive the trophy, other awards and then return to the team hotel. The celebrations carry on in the streets of Mumbai well into the night. But wait, what happened to that ball? You know, the one that Dhoni hit into the stands and is easily a collector's item for any cricket fan? Turns out, no one's known for a whole nine years. The normal procedure is, whenever a ball lands in the ground, there are groundsmen, there are ball boy, or there's the fourth umpire. Fourth umpire are the designated officials who look after the ball, who assist on-field umpires. So they usually collect the ball back. That's Devinder Pandey, the Indian Express's sports correspondent on what happens when a ball is hit into the crowd in a typical cricket match. But that procedure he described is what happens when the match is a normal one. But this was the World Cup and Dhoni had just hit the winning runs. You can imagine the situation in 2011 when the ball was hit. The entire stadium was celebrating up and down. They were dancing, they were jumping. Nobody actually thought to get the ball from the stand. Everybody was celebrating maybe. Everybody was excited. There's no clarity whether the umpire went and looked out for the ball. Whatever I spoke to the people, they couldn't find the ball. So till then, it was a mystery that where was the ball. Until a Mumbai Cricket Association official, Ajinkya Naik, decided to plan something to honour the former Indian captain after he announced his retirement on the 15th of August. Now the thing is, Dhoni is not associated directly with Mumbai in any way. He's linked with Chennai thanks to the IPL and his hometown is Ranchi in Jharkhand. But Naik had an idea. It's naming the place, actually the seat where the ball landed in 2011. It's a big task to find an exact location. If you remember, uh, in 2015, New Zealand, similar thing happened. Grant Elliott hit a famous six, which enabled New Zealand to enter the finals of World Cup for the first time. 
So they had a research team. They found out the exact place and they named the seat as a Grant Elliott seat. Similarly, Ajinkya Nayak proposed the idea to Mumbai Cricket Association. Basically, Nayak wanted a Dhoni seat in the pavilion, which was where that missing ball had landed on that night in 2011. And beneath, you can write that the ball landed here in 2011. The Mumbai Cricket Association began the process of finding the seat. And that's when another cricketing legend solved two mysteries in one go. Sunil Gavaskar writes to the official saying that he not only knows which seat the ball landed at, but even knows where the missing ball is. And here's where it almost fell apart again. Apparently what happened, what I was told in MCA that the mail landed in spam folder. So it took time for Ajin to retrieve it because he had no idea that the mail landed in spam folder. So he got it hold of it last week itself and then he informed to MCA that we have found the ball. So where was the ball? The ball is safely in Hong Kong. An NRI guy who travelled in 2011 to watch India versus Sri Lanka final game had the ball. What I've been told, he has framed of, uh, the ticket also with him as a proof and he has framed the ball with him and has written somewhere that it's a ball which Dhoni hit in 2011. So it's nicely put in a case, there's a ticket to prove it. Do we know what seat number it is also effectively as a result? Yeah, it's L block 210. And here's the thing. Gavaskar's possibly known about it for years. Do we know how Gavaskar found out where this ball was, as in how had he learned of it and how long has he known about it in a sense? I think Gavaskar knew about it because probably nobody would have asked or nobody would have contacted Gavaskar or MCA or any BCCA would have tried to contact it or search for the ball. But Gavaskar must have, because in that mail which I was told he had written to Ajinkya, he clearly stated that one of his friend's friend has that ball and his friend told him few years back that the 2011 ball is with him lying in Hong Kong, some posh flat. So that is how Gavaskar got to know. Nobody has asked about it till date. Suddenly that came from nowhere that they are naming a seat. Even Ajink had written in his mail to Mumbai Cricket Association in his proposal that we should also try to retrieve the ball back. So that's how Gavaskar read it in Indian Express. And then he contacted Ajink Kinayak that he know where the ball is. The cricket administration is now trying to verify the claim and will try and convince the Hong Kong resident to return the ball for a museum that it is planning. Do we know why this fan literally never spoke of it? I mean, this is easily one of the most iconic memorabilia of Indian cricket easily, if not perhaps even world cricket. How come this fan just caught a ball, you know, kind of walks out of the stadium, flies out of India, and at no point does this man ever cite the fact that he's holding on to this memorabilia. Do we know anything about that? Imagine if you got hold of the ball of 2011 World Cup final. I will, of course, I, if I would have been in his place, I wouldn't have given the ball back. Because it's such a historic ball to have it, especially if you have traveled from Hong Kong to watch this game and you get hold of the ball. And <laughs> it's it just, you know, precious. It might be the case that the guy must have got hold of the ball and he must have left. Like other day, Dhoni hit a six in Dubai. It went outside on the road and the guy took the ball and went back. You were listening to The Three Things by The Indian Express. Today's show was written and produced by me, Arun George. And as always, was edited and mixed by our producer, Joshua Thomas. Before we go, here's another reminder to check out Indian Express's Explained page. You can log on to indianexpress.com forward slash explained and find in-depth analysis by the right experts. It has everything you need to know to understand the news better and see the bigger picture. 
If you like the show, then do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also recommend the show to someone you think will like it. Share it with a friend or someone in your family. It's the best way for people to get to know about us. You can also tweet us at Express Audio and write to us at podcast at indianexpress.com.